ask them too. Hey, uh, I see a, f a few new faces, people I maybe haven't met. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so glad that you came. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you feel welcomed and, and can, can consider getting connected with our mission here at Mill City. Um, I am the one that's going to be in the great room talking about baptism. So I just want you to know if you've got questions, maybe you're not thinking this is the time yet, but if you just want to talk about it, I would just love to do that. Or maybe you want to affirm a baptism that you had earlier in your life. That's something we often do at our baptism services. And so please just come talk to me. No, I'll give you some free coffee. Everybody gets free coffee. That's the thing. To, okay, it's fine. Um, I'm actually very excited to jump into a new conversation today. This is a subject that I'm very, very passionate about. Um, but I want to start with a question to see if, if y'all are like me. And that is this. When you're growing up, were there things that you thought you wanted, but then you discovered it turns out it's not what you actually wanted? Because I have a theory that part of growing up is there's things you're like, oh, I really want that. And then when you experience it, you're like, no, just kidding. That's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted. So let me just give you two examples, and I want you to think about this in your own life. Um, I think that this is, I feel like it happens to a lot of us. So the summer after third grade, I remember this very distinctly. I went to my mom, and I said to her, I said, Mom, um, I want a summer haircut. And I remember the, what I described. She's right here, so you can fact check. I would like something to kind of tame the curls, right, and... Uh, make it a little lighter because it's hot, and then to get the hair out of my eyes. That was a big part. Turns out there is a name for that haircut. Does anybody know what it is? It's a mullet. It's called a mullet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mullet. So that, that's it. So um, I thought that's what I wanted, but I didn't actually want that. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, one just fun fact, it turns out third grade Steph with a mullet is my third grade nephew Amos right now. <laughs> How about that? Now, I made sure that he approved this because he thinks it's funny right now in third grade, but nobody tell him about this when he's 13. It's a secret. We're going to keep it here. Says here. So you see, like, it's something I thought that I wanted, but I didn't actually want it. Okay, second example for my life. When I was in high school, I thought the coolest job I could get was to be a lifeguard. I mean, that seems kind of cool, at least it was in the 90s. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be a lifeguard, and then I did the lifeguard training. It turns out when you're training to be a lifeguard, you have to swim to the bottom of a deep pool a lot, and my mild to moderate phobia of being submerged underwater, like it didn't work out super well. <laughs> turns out, still, still a mild phobia. Anyway, so I thought that I wanted that, but it turns out that's not what I actually wanted. So maybe you're thinking about this in your own life. Unfortunately, since high school, I've still had this problem where I thought I wanted something, and it turns out that's not what I actually wanted. And I think that I'm somebody who hopes, and maybe you are too, that this is something we would grow out of, right? This idea that, that we know what we want, and then we find out that we're way off. I, I wish we could grow out of it. But I want to suggest today, as we start this new conversation, that there's something that nearly all of us in this room think that we want, but we don't actually want it. Somebody in here was like, come on, there's not something, all of us. Okay, this is, my, this is my thought. There's something that everyone in here, nearly all of us, want, but we don't actually want it. We just think we want it. What is that thing? I think it's belonging. Now, don't get defensive. Don't get, just let me explain. 
Some of you are thinking, and I know that some of you know me, you're like, Pastor Steph, you literally always talk about how humans are wired for belonging and purpose. What are you talking about? This is like a contradiction. And I, 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 you're right. I do believe that God made us and wired us for purpose and belonging. So if it seems like a contradiction to say that we're wired for belonging but we don't actually want to belong, then you're right. I actually think it is one of the greatest contradictions of our time. Here is why this contradiction exists. We want belonging, but we don't want to have to belong to anyone else. Not really. The great contradiction is that we're all longing for belonging, but we're being formed for individualism. Everything around us, the air that we breathe, the information we consume, the stories that are celebrated, the achievements that are lauded, the ideals that are declared are all leading us deeper and deeper and deeper into individualism and independence and self-reliance. We want to experience belonging without having to actually belong to anybody else but ourselves. And I'm putting myself at the front of the list. I feel this tension deeply. Belonging to others means we have to lay down our preferences more than we want because it just can't be about us, it turns out. Belonging to others means way more uncertainty than we want because you have your own uncertainty and then when people belong to you and you belong to them, you have to care about their uncertainty too. Yikes. And then, you know, belonging is something that we recognize makes it so that we're interrupted more than we'd like to be interrupted because we have to put the needs of someone else ahead of our own and then there's this having to actually like share our needs with other people thing. That's, yikes, a lot of people, that's, that's where they don't want the actual experience of belonging. And so the heart of the conversation this whole month is this. Belonging is not what we actually want, but it's desperately what we need. Belonging is not what we actually want when we're really honest with ourselves, but it's desperately what we need. And so to dig into this, we're going to use the metaphors that are, we see in the New Testament letters that are metaphors for the community of God, like the, the metaphors for what it means to belong in a community. These metaphors tell us, like, what should this look like? What should this feel like? What are the things that we're having to overcome? What are the ways that we can do this? And we'll see that these early church leaders, Paul, Peter, they're pointing out the barriers. They're pointing out the challenges. But we also see that, I hope we see, that there is a chance to be a part of something that can overcome the great contradiction. I think that it's possible. In fact, I think this passage, we're going to kick off the conversa conversation today, is going to give us a chance to just really see that there is an ex a chance to experience belonging in a world that is falling deeper and deeper into isolation. I mean, we, we are seeing this. The medical journals are saying this. The studies are showing that this world is falling deeper and deeper into isolation. And we have a powerful chance to experience belonging in the midst of that world. Amen. Yes, amen. Okay, so let's start with 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, if you have a Bible, uh, you can pull that up. We'll have it on the screen as well. Uh, this is the metaphor of the body, the body of Christ, okay? This is a familiar uh, image to some people because it's actually pretty common. Paul uses it in multiple places, in Romans, Ephesians, and here in 1 Corinthians. And today is going to be part one of this metaphor, and then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, and next week we're going to do part two in Romans. And I don't often do like a part one and part two sermon. That's not really my thing usually, but today I really feel like we need to do that. I really think that we need this conversation about what it means to be the body to, to happen for two weeks. I hope you can see the, the need for the two-part conversation by the time we get to the end. 
So something I think that uh, if you've heard of the body of Christ metaphor before or not, something that's easy to miss as we read this today is the way the people in the ancient context would be reading this. When they're hearing Paul, this early leader in the church, write this letter to the church in Corinth, they are thinking about this image of people, this, this idea of a body, because it's common in Roman culture at the time to be used. This, this image of people coming together to form a body would have been used often in a very specific way. And it's not in the poetic, poetic picture of unity that we see here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, and it's not that we've come to understand. So I want us to think the way that they would have thought when we're listening to this. When the first people listening to Paul's letter written to the church in Corinth heard this metaphor, they would not recognize it as a picture of unity. Rather, they it would make them think of the class system and the way that the corrupt leaders desired to control other people. Everybody would have thought of that right away. Let's look at what these commentaries point out. The analogy of the body prevalent in Greco-Roman culture and rhetoric, was used to reinforce the status hierarchies of strong and weak. Remember that phrase, strong and weak, before we read our passage. This figure of speech was ordinarily used to urge members of subordinate classes to stay in their places in the social order and to not upset the natural equilibrium of the body by rebelling against their superiors. So can you just keep that in mind, that that's how people were hearing what Paul was writing? The first time they heard these words, they're hearing this guy use that familiar metaphor, and this is what he says. I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Let me pause there for just a minute. Paul is describing this metaphor, and right away we see that he's taking this metaphor that, that the corrupt Roman government used, and he's turning it on its head in its meaning. He's saying instead of the body is many parts, so stay in your place, whatever part you are. Don't try to be a different part. <laughs> Instead, he uses the phrase, we're all given one spirit to drink, to show how the Holy Spirit brings unity in diversity between groups of people that used to be in opposition, and then he gives two examples, Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free. But he could have gone on in a long list of people who used to be in opposition. What Jesus has done then, when he says that it is in Christ, is that Jesus has torn down the walls between these groups of people, but there's more that he's done. Listen as I continue to read. This is just how far Paul is willing to go with this description. Please understand how he is just blowing the paradigm line by line. I'll continue on in verse 15. It's kind of poetic, so you hear some repetition. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an ear, or because I am not an eye, I should not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God, I mean, this is, this is paradigm shifting. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now here's where Paul really pushes it. In case they were thinking still about the Roman way of seeing this, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. 
And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that would seem weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. That would have been like a mic drop moment right there. What? If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. This is just completely countercultural. As this first audience, if the first audience heard this explanation, it would be so clear that Paul's trying to contrast when when the corrupt Roman power-hungry government tries to put together a community, this is what it looks like. But when God puts a community together, it is upside down and backwards of what you think, and it changes everything. That's what Paul's saying. So when I reflect on this, I just, you know, to kind of simplify that poem, I see three kind of priorities of Paul. They're kind of clear here if you ask me. The first priority of the body is interdependence over individualism. Verse 15, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the foot decides to be an individual, I can say that if it wants, but it cannot be, right? It's that practical. Uh, Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. The second priority I see is unity and diversity over uniformity and homogeneity. I know these are a lot of words, but think about it. Unity, still coming together, but still being who you are and who God made you to be, and that's different and that's good. Instead of uniformity, everyone needs to fall in line and be the same in homogeneity, which turns out can make people feel connected, but it's just because they're the same. And here, Paul is talking to a group of people who have come from many different backgrounds who maybe feel like it's impossible to be one body. And he says, no, 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 you can. But you got to let go of the homogeneity and this uniformity. You need to elevate unity and diversity. And that's what we see with verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And in verse 26, and I think this is so powerful, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That is not even close to what people who had been using this image would have suggested, right? We'll let other people suffer so that we can have it all. That's what was happening. Number three, I think the priority of Paul here is honor over hierarchy. Hierarchy was the name of the game here in ancient Rome. And I think it is still in our cultures today. It's just not quite as clear and direct, I think, but it's there. In verse 22 to 23, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. Weaker are indispensable, and the parts we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. 24 and 25, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. These, these three priorities were deeply countercultural then. And I want to suggest they are deeply countercultural now. In that culture then, the honor and shame-based culture, it was all about people were paying other people to make them look good. But here we have Paul saying, no, we honor people that are the least honored in this world that we live in. 
We elevate the people who are the weakest. They can do the least for us, but we give them indispensable sense that they are needed in this community. And in the midst of a world where the great contradiction reigns, I think this seems impossible. Like, I, I listen to that. It's beautiful, isn't it, what Paul's saying? But these three priorities in our world today, I'm just going to say right now, it feels impossible. And I'm about to go, like, even deeper into the deep end with you. And as I was writing this sermon, I was like, okay, before we go even deeper, try to lighten it up a little bit. Okay? I'm just letting you in the inside. So I was like, okay, how about I, this is in the spirit of what I thought I wanted, but I didn't really want it. I could Google some images of the body of Christ to give us a sense of, like, a, a visual to help us right now to pause. And I didn't really want to, it turns out, because look what, the, look what I found. Oh, my goodness. Like, what? Oh, no. It's even weirder on the big screen, I'm telling you right now. Like, look at that. What's going on over here with the Star Wars? And then there were some that were more technical, like these next ones. What? These are little bodies in the... Oh, okay. No, okay. There's even worse ones on my phone if you want to see them, but you want to be blown, whatever. We need to take it off. Take it off the screen. Take it off the screen. <clears throat> I thought... <laughs> I know you can't unsee that now. <laughs> I was like, this will be good, a nice pause to catch our breath in the middle of the sermon. Like, what I thought I wanted, not what I wanted to do, it turns out. So we're going to skip the visuals and just jump right into the deep end. All right, sorry. <laughs> this is what we're doing. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm so sorry. You can't unsee that now. Like, it's burned in my brain on that big screen. It's just a lot. Okay. The Great Contradiction. <clears throat> so the Great Contradiction, and, and maybe you're with me from the beginning on this, but I just want to ground this out. Like, what do I mean by this? Because if I, I'm, I mean, that's a pretty big statement, the greatest contradiction of our time. Like, I, I know that. But look at this. We want belonging, but we don't want to have to belong to anybody else. And we're all longing for belonging, but we're being formed for individualism. Right? Everything around us, I said earlier, everything around us, the air that we breathe, the information that we consume, the, the stories that are celebrated, the achievements that are lauded, the ideals that are just declared at us all the time are leading us deeper and deeper into this belief that the goal is individualism and independence and self-reliance. And so Paul's priorities here of interdependence and unity and diversity and honor, our culture literally trains us forms us, maybe we could even say brainwashes us to prioritize the opposite. Right? Deep end. But I just want us to be honest about this. And so when I think about what it would mean for us to live as the body of Christ, it feels like the great contradiction follows us everywhere. And so I just took some time this week and I just prayed about it and I said, I'm just going to write down what I think the effects are of the great contradiction on our lives. When I think about my own life first, and as I listen to the stories that I hear from so many of you, I just wrote this list down, and here's what I'm, I'm I want to read it to you. And what I want for you to, to think about is that the, the point of this list is for you to feel seen, not to feel shame. Like, this is, this is too much. This is not something that we're going to be able to overcome if we let shame get in there. So we just need to get rid of that. And I hope as I read this, you're like, oh, I resonate with that. Oh, I see that. That's the life I'm experiencing. I just want you to feel seen in how hard this is, okay? So here, here we go. We're supposed to be independent because you don't want to be dependent and you for sure don't want to be codependent. And some of us don't totally know what codependent is, but we're not supposed to be that. 
but being independent only seems to work for the people who can pay other people to cover the details of their life that they can't cover on their own. So are those people independent? We want to experience belonging and being known, but we're supposed to also be one of a kind and an individual, not a conformist. Self-fulfillment is a goal that we should all have, and we need to determine our identity, but nobody else can tell you how to identify. We're supposed to pursue self-care and, and authenticity and not being authentic. Yet it turns out deepening relationships of belonging is super uncomfortable and awkward and doesn't feel like self-care most of the time. And, and then it means that there's things that we're going to have to do that we don't really want to do. And is that being inauthentic when we do things we don't really want to do? We're trained by our environments to be addicted to instant gratification. But belonging is a long game thing. We're supposed to look for maybe like the silver bullet, or maybe someone can just do this for me, and I can pay someone, or there's an app for that, or maybe the church can just do it if I show up. That's just what I feel. Am I, am I people resonating like this is what we feel like comes at us in our life? So then maybe we're supposed to prioritize coming to worship every Sunday and connecting with other people during the week, but we're also supposed to prioritize our extended families. And most of the time we have to go visit them somewhere, and it's typically on the weekend, and that makes it hard to get back here. And you better not visit somebody more than somebody else or someone's going to be mad. Okay, so that's, that's not just certain people. Okay, we want the kids to feel like they belong in their church family but we don't want to fit them to feel like weirdos when they don't do like a sport or an activity on a Sunday every once in a while. And I think we're supposed to have belonging and, and a sense of purpose for the kids, and activities with other kids does that, for sure. And so we want them to be in the activities. But then there's so many activities that all of a sudden the minivan is like a dad taxi or like a mom Uber, and it's terrible. And if that youngest one doesn't get a nap, it's over for everybody. We hope to find belonging by attending groups and teams and showing up on work social hours and barbecues, but then our calendars are so full that we can't prioritize deep friendships where we can spend quality time with others beyond all the frenzy. Our society places such an excessive emphasis on work and career and this relentless pursuit of identity and self-worth that comes from what we do, yet we just want to be loved for who we are and give our hearts to something more than a paycheck or a vocational achievement. But then Pastor Seth says that our work is supposed to matter because it matters to God, which it does. We're pressured to relocate to a different city for a promotion or to upgrade to a better neighborhood from a starter home, yet we want to be rooted deeply with the people around us, and we ask, how quickly can we get rooted? Does it really have to take a couple of years? Well, we might not be here in a couple of years. We can get overwhelmed by meeting new people, but then we are overwhelmed by not knowing who our people are. But to figure out who our people are, we have to meet new people. That one's a riddle. A little too proud of that. We don't want to feel tied down or experience a loss of autonomy or freedom. We don't want anyone else to dictate our agency. But all we want at the core of who we are is to belong and to not feel lonely and to not feel like we are alone even when we're with a bunch of people. But to not be alone, I have to give up my life for people who would hopefully give up their life for mine. And that's pretty risky. I could get hurt or disappointed or rejected again. The world is literally more connected now than it has ever been in history, but belonging is at an all-time low. It's exhausting. It's not working. And the great contradiction is winning the day as the loneliness epidemic is growing to seismic proportions. 
Okay, deep breath, everyone. I need a deep breath, so hold on. And, and this is real. I just think this is real. This is why this is so hard. And I hope you feel seen in that. This is the challenge. And that challenge is not going to go anywhere. However, Paul says to the church in Corinth what I believe is just as relevant for us today. You belong to each other just like a hand belongs to a wrist. Just like an elbow belongs to an arm. You can't not belong to each other. You do. Just as a body, in verse 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And I think about this body, this unified body that Paul describes, and I think they must have thought it was impossible back then when I think about their context, and it feels impossible now. But I do, I actually, I genuinely believe it is possible. And I think that there's a, a clue in our text right here how is this possible? But we can't miss it. Look at this verse again. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. There's something weird about this sentence. If you'd never heard it before, you'd think, this is weird. It feels like it should say, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with the church. Think about it. Like, that's what it feels like it should say. And scholars have wondered about this for ages. What is Paul trying to say? Is the body just a metaphor for Christian community? Because if it is, then why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he just say, so it is with the church? Wait, so is Paul saying that when we're together, we're inhabited by the spirit of Jesus and we can actually be Jesus to each other and to the world around us? Is Paul saying that we become the actual body of Jesus that tangibly loves the world? So which is it, Paul, right? Is it a nice poetic metaphor of belonging and community, or is it a metaphysical reality of Jesus on earth? And I think if Paul was sitting right here, hopefully in the front because there's not a lot of people here, I think if Paul was sitting right here, he would say, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, this is a beautiful picture of how belonging is experienced through independence, interdependence and unity and honor. Right? Like this, yes, this is a metaphor of how you can have unity and diversity, how you can have interdependence, not dependence, and, inter and in independence. And this is a picture of how you can honor each other as we think about this metaphor. But yes, the spirit of Jesus inhabits the church as we let the spirit do the impossible. I, I believe this is true. The words, the works, the ways of Jesus settle and resolve the great contradiction. Jesus settles it in his very life. He shows what it looks like to lay down your life. He displays why true belonging is worth giving your life for. Jesus shows us that belonging is first found in him. And then he doesn't stop there. He could, right? But he doesn't stop there. Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit upon us to empower us to release what we can't release on our own. Selfishness, self-centeredness, fear, insecurity, individualism. I don't know about you, but trying to release those on my own, it doesn't work. But the empowerment of the Holy Spirit can help root those things out of our lives. And then the Spirit of Jesus literally and figuratively fills us together as one body. Like literally and figuratively. Isn't it cool? Sometimes people say literally, but they mean figuratively. But Okay. The, the spirit of Jesus literally and figuratively fills us as we come together as one body. 
It wouldn't be possible if it was just a cute metaphor. But it is so much more than that. Paul says so clearly at the end of our passage for today in verse 27. Now you, or I like to say y'all, typically when Paul says you, he means y'all. So you can, you can give my permission to change that in your Bibles. Now y'all are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. And I know this can seem mysterious. And I'm telling you the impossible is possible because I've seen it. And I know some of you have seen it too. You've seen those glimpses. It's not utopian. It's not perfect. But in the midst of the great contradiction, we have seen glimpses of the impossible becoming possible. You've seen it. Think about it with me. Here's some examples. I've seen it. I've experienced such deep belonging with those that God has put in my life. It is as though the actual arms of Jesus have held me up when I needed it the most. That's the body of Christ. I have experienced hand-to-wrist level closeness with people in my life who could not be more different than me. Their ethnic background, their life experience, their, the things that they have experienced, but I don't know how to explain it any better than where does my hand end and my wrist begin? I don't know. That's how mysterious the closeness I've had with people. It doesn't make sense except for the body of Christ. I've seen rootedness that should have taken decades be experienced in a matter of months. I have known people who should be enemies be as close as brothers. I've seen people who felt totally lost experience being found in the family of God, a God-given family. That's the body of Christ. I've seen supernatural patience, maybe it's in my own life, for even the most frustrating personalities. I've watched people choose to serve rather than be served and to be people who choose to be hosts of hospitality instead of expecting to be hosted all the time. This is the body of Christ working in people's lives. I've seen people lay down their preferences for the sake of the whole so that everybody could be included, even though they're like, this is not what I would want. But I want this to be a place where everyone can experience belonging. I've seen people who were deeply wounded by what was supposed to be a loving community resolve to commit to pursue healing from that. And I don't know how they could possibly do it if it wasn't for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the ways that God gives them courage to seek out for help and for counseling and whatever they need to do. But I have seen people walk confidently back in to just a scary circumstance of trusting other people because they've experienced healing. That's the body of Christ. And in the midst of a world where the great contradiction reigns, the impossible can be possible because Jesus is in our very midst. It's not the body of the church. It's the body of Christ. I hope that's just seared in your mind. It's not the body of the church. Good, great. That's a nice metaphor. It's the body of Christ. Belonging is not what we actually want, but it's desperately what we need. And it's desperately what this world needs. We see that in the lives of the people around us. I don't think it's out of base to say that it's desperately what people need. And Jesus chose us to be the body that tried to forge a way to show that there's a way in the midst of all of this great contradiction. And so next week, like I said, this is part one. Somebody's like, please, give us something to do. I get it. So next week, part two, okay? But it's so tempting to just give like the three ways (laughs) to seek belonging and to not feel so much tension about the great contradiction. Um, And we're going to get there. We're going to take this month, we're going to dig into practical things, we're going to talk about how we can overcome the tensions that I listed within the the great contradiction. 
But I deeply believe that there is no point in talking practically until we settle something spiritually. And this is the place I think we need to start. We need to start by surrendering self-centeredness. I know it's, it's a tough one, but that's where we have to start. What would be the point of trying to do a bunch of things if we don't root out the self-centeredness that's inside of each of us that the great contradiction has formed? And so I invite you right now, we're just going to do a pretty, pretty easy practice. You can stay where you're sitting, and we're going to release the things that hold us back from belonging. The, the self-centeredness that can look like a lot of other stuff in our life, like fear, insecurities. It can look like being people who are so self-focused that we can't see what's happening with other people's lives. But here's why. When we're the center of our lives, it's interesting because that makes it pretty difficult to actually experience belonging, even though it seems like it should. But the air that we breathe is programming to keep us to keep ourselves at the center. But if we can dig within ourselves deeply and root out the self-centeredness and the things that are holding us back, then guess what? In the center of our lives can be Jesus. But as long as we're at the center of our lives, Jesus cannot be. And if Jesus is at the center of our lives, then we get to be the body of Christ and we experience belonging in other people, experience belonging in a world that desperately longs to belong. When Jesus is at the center, then our lives are formed by imitating Jesus. Do you see how key that is? We have to imitate Jesus because otherwise we will by default imitate a news feed, a news cycle, our coworkers, what our job says, what the world says all the time. If we intentionally choose to imitate Jesus who laid down his life for us, that will change everything. But we have to remove ourselves from the center and let Jesus be at the center. And I realize that's a, a spiritual kind of metaphysical thing. So we're just going to do this right now. I have to do this practice all the time, mostly when I feel impatient with people in my life, okay? It's just a simple practice. So if you're willing, we're just going to do that, and then we'll go into our time of communion. If you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes. We're just going to center in on speaking to the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is my prayer for all of us, and you can pray it in your heart. Holy Spirit, will you show us what's taking hold within us that's holding us back from deeper belonging. Reveal to that, reveal that to us right now. Spirit, reveal the, the self-centeredness, the selfishness that most of us have somewhere in our hearts, even if we don't always notice it. Bring that to the surface. But now let's ask the Spirit, what's even deeper, what's deeper than that? Is it impatience? Is it wanting control? Is it fear? Fear of rejection? fear of loss? Is it unforgiveness? What has taken hold of your heart that's holding you back from belonging and centering Jesus in your life? Just take a minute to listen. Holy Spirit, reveal it to each one of us. has come to mind. Most of us have to do this every day or more than that, depending on who we're with. But Spirit, we take this word, we take this phrase of what we want rooted out of us, and I just want you to imagine now. I want you to imagine digging down deep and pulling, pulling this up to the surface of your life and giving it to Jesus. Give Jesus that self-centeredness. Give him that hurt, that rejection, that fear of loss. Give Jesus that self-centeredness, that selfishness. 
that self-reliance. Just let him hold it for you. And then I want you to imagine in that place in your life where you pulled out what was holding you back. It's now empty and it is filled now, being filled by the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Let the Spirit fill those places that are now open for you to be filled by the Spirit of Jesus. Paul says that the same Spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead is living alive in us, that Spirit. Let it fill your life in those places where you remove those things that were holding you back. At this moment, with the Spirit there, Jesus is at the center of your life. And yes, this is a practice we have to do over and over. Spirit, we ask you to remind us that we can surrender our self-centeredness every day, all the time. And fill us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we're going to sing just a couple lines of our first song as a prayer to finish this spiritual practice before we go into our time of communion.